back to the Time of Death podcast with your host, Taylor. Hi, guys. It's, it's been, I was about to say it's been a minute, but it hasn't. I didn't do a news dive this week because just everything that's been happening in Ukraine and Russia, it flooded my news consumption. So finding articles about the death penalty kind of became a little bit tiresome because of all the news I was consuming already. I'm sorry. I feel like everyone else is on that same train though. Like it's just been nonstop reading, watching things about it. Like it's just been crazy, but I will have another one for you next week unless something even worse happens and I'm not able to, but this week definitely took me off, took me off guard and I'm sorry. But anyway, I am bringing you a deep dive and you better like it. So I think this week I'm very excited to dive a little bit more into California's death row. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say, if you like my podcast, if you like these topics, I would greatly appreciate if you could follow me on my social media. It's the simplest thing you can do to support me and it's free. So all of my, all of my social media is at time of death pod and that's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Along with that, I would also say the other thing you can do that is also free to support me is to leave me a review on Apple Podcast or, you know, favorite my podcast on Spotify or give me a five-star review on Spotify if you really like it, okay? If you hate it, I don't think you'd be lying, but just to let you know, you don't have to. And last thing, if you have anything you want to tell me or any topics you want to be covered, you can email me at timeofdeath pod at gmail.com or you can send me a dm let's just dive into this i'm very excited it's a little bit more chill because of all the shit that's been going on california's death row has some of the most famous alleged killers like scott peterson rodney alcala charles manson and i think i said this last week but it was it's a huge death row and it's just a huge prison system in general so you're gonna see a lot more famous killers yeah, it's kind of crazy. But this week, I didn't really want to talk about like, oh my god, the most famous of the famous. No, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about three cases that were kind of the first and last and kind of just break them down, talk about what happened, but that they're all guilty and gross and disgusting. So I'm very happy on that end. So let's, the first one that we're going to do, we're traveling back to 1937. I did mention Folsom State Prison last week, and that was one of two prisons back in the day that were used for executions. I'm not sure if Folsom State Prison is still used, but San Quentin definitely is, or if an execution were to take place, it would take place in San Quentin. But yeah, I don't know about Folsom State Prison anymore. Anyway, Folsom State Prison has seen numerous attempted escapes. The most recent actually happened in 2010, but that's not what we're covering. We are going back to 1937. And according to Sword, Sword and Scale, which I think is like an online blog, Folsom had a reputation for being one of the most uncomfortable, dangerous, and miserable, miserable prisons in the U.S. at the time. Up until 1937, hangings were still a form of execution. And I don't know how many of you, I don't know if I covered this or have told you, but hangings are gruesome. <laughs> they might not have a lot of blood or anything. And also you need to, to know a little bit of math or at least know a little bit of physics to actually hang someone properly, at least the way they do. 
a lot of the times, depending on how how wrong their calculations were, there there was either you break their neck or almost like half decapitate them to some some degree, or they choke out for like twenty to thirty minutes. So it can get pretty like bad. Anyway, some inmates at the prison were bought were on ball and chain, others were flogged, some were put in solitary confinement, and the guards were always ready to shoot anyone who tried to escape. So you can tell that they are used to this. On September 19th, 1937, things were boiling. Due to the torture and abuse, inmates were becoming angry and desperate. Seven of these inmates had made plans to escape. So supposedly there was a bunch of prisoners waiting to talk to the prison ward, whose name was Clarence Larkin, about their impending paroles, but these seven men that I mentioned attack Larkin with their homemade knives. And to be honest, I don't exactly know what that means. Maybe they sharpened things. And I'm sure back in the 30s, a lot of other things were allowed in the prison that probably aren't allowed now. <laughs> I don't know. The men murdered one officer, and his name was Henry Martin, and then threatened to murder their hostages, which was the warden and the captain of the guards. And this is if the the officers or the tower guards did not open the gate to let them out. Now, the warden being as courageous and amazing as he is, he yells at the tower guards to not open the gate, and he put himself and the captain at the fate of the seven crazed inmates. Both of the men were stabbed numerous times. The warden later in Sutter Hospital died of an infection because of the stab wounds and then the captain actually remarkably survived but this was after like weeks of intensive care yeah it's it was it was bad so in an article from the madeira madeira tribune from september 1937 larkin was 46 at the time of his death the article goes on to say the husky warden hero of the unsuccessful break at Folsom, in which seven convicts were foiled in their attempt to win freedom waged a valiant fight for life, but was unable to rally from complications, which set in yesterday. Pretty nice words. The remaining guards responded to this by opening fire, which killed two of the seven men. The other five were injured, but this opening of fire led to a really just crazy scene. A bunch of prisoners were running, people were taking cover, people were just simply dropping to avoid being hit. Once things kind of sort of settled down, the tower guards and other officers began just beating the inmates, kind of like straightening them out, trying to figure out what the fuck was going on. They obviously took hold of the five that killed the warden, and they were shipped off to San Quentin to be executed. So this is notable for one reason, and only one reason. Why did I bring this up? attempted escape was just so horrendous, but also two of the escapees, Robert Lee Cannon and Albert Kessel, were sentenced to use California's gas chamber. This was gonna be the first two uses of the gas chamber. It's crazy to think about, and I don't, I'll have to look back and see if I went through a deep dive of the gas chamber, but there's a reason why we don't use it anymore. There's a couple reasons, but I think the biggest one, and I think this is one that everyone argues, especially nowadays, is you're using the same type of gas or the same type of killing method as they did in the Holocaust. And then two, it's just a very cruel way to kill someone. And I get it. Everyone, like, this, these two guys killed a warden. They deserve it. But it, it's pretty gruesome. Basically, them just, like, suffocating for 15 minutes. Okay, so on December 2nd, 1938, both men who were on San Quentin's notoriously named the Condemned Row 
walked to the ready room, which was this chamber that was eerily painted, this apple green, very cheery and like off-putting. Inside the chamber, there were two chairs with straps hanging off of them. They were strapped up and the door was sealed. And according to the Sword and Scale article I read, Kessel's death was bad. He held in his breath and he tried to avoid breathing. When you are being executed via the gas chamber or via lethal gas, they tell you to inhale and like count to 10 or something like that, you know, just to make it go by faster. He held in as long as possible, but it didn't really help him because both of them were dead within 15 minutes either way. <laughs> so that is the story of the September 1937 Folsom attempted prison escape. All right, so next on the docket. July 5th was your average summer day in 1978. John Mayeski, who was 16, and Michael Baker, who was 15, were just trying to spend it like any teenagers would. The boys were best friends, and they planned on going fishing. They were so excited because John had just gotten his license, which, like, gave the two boys all of this freedom. They were just driving around in this green Ford LTD and just, like, living their life. It was the summer. They weren't, they probably weren't in school. They were just chilling out. They had gotten a couple of hamburgers at a local supermarket and they were just eating outside in the parking lot and just trying to have a chill summer. However, that was not the case. And I wish it was because I used to do that all the time in the summer and it just makes me so sad. Robert Alton Harris and his brother Daniel had other plans. They saw the two boys in the parking lot, thought it was a great idea to abduct them. So Robert went up to the driver's side, talked to John, kind of pointed a gun at him. He was like, I don't want to hurt you guys. Just follow my instructions and no one will get hurt. And then they drove to Miramar Lake with Daniel driving behind the Ford. And really Robert and Daniel's intentions or what they had told the boys where their intentions was just to steal their car. They only wanted the car because they were going to rob a bank. Now, once they got there, he kind of changed plans. He told the two teens that they were going to steal their car, obviously. But when they got there, he ordered the boys to get out of the car and kneel down. Pretty much an execution style. It's very sad, especially when you see how old these kids are. 16 and 15, like, they've done nothing wrong. And they began to cry and they began to pray. I guess supposedly Robert said quit crying and die like men and from there the two boys were shot multiple times and it's I'm just it makes me so sad. <laughs> like, I'm so sad. Robert and Daniel returned to the town that where they found the boys an hour later. They robbed a branch of the San Diego Trust and Savings Bank, which was across the street from where they first encountered the boys. In total, they stole $2,000. I'm like, you fuckers, that's all you get? I mean, it was also in the 70s, so... Maybe that's a lot more money than I'm thinking, but you guys are fuckers. The two didn't get away, obviously. And this is the part that makes me kind of chuckle a little bit. There was a witness who followed the two to their home and notified the cops from there. How are you guys this stupid to go all the way home not thinking that anyone's going to follow you? To get to that point where someone is following you, either you are hella slow or you guys just really, I mean, obviously you guys suck. You only stole $2,000, but are you kidding me? I'm glad you got caught, obviously, but it's just like, 
guys are stupid. According to the CDCR, which is the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, Daniel gave a voluntary statement describing the abduction and killings. From there, investigators went to the crime scene and they discovered the two bodies. Something very sad to note is one of the men that arrested Robert and Daniel was the father of Michael Baker, and he didn't know that his son had died at the time of the arrest, which is just so heartbreaking. It's just so sad. So Daniel was not sentenced to death, but he was convicted of kidnapping and was sentenced to six years in state prison. Currently, he's either dead or he's out of prison because he was released in 1983. Or maybe he's back in prison for something else, which would be great. For Robert, however, he was sentenced to death because he killed the boys. His death sentence went through appeals process but was rejected multiple times. His death sentence was also reimposed by the Supreme Court in 1984 after the Court of Appeals granted a writ habeas corpus two years prior. When Robert was going to be executed, there was a series of four stays that stopped it throughout the morning of April 21st, 1992. And this is another problem I have with the death penalty. Do not take this the wrong way, but if you're going to kill someone that day, you should just kill them. Just kill them. But I do get why they do this last minute. Oh my God. Like imagine you're, you're waiting there in the death chair waiting to go. And then all of a sudden, oh no, not today, buddy. Sorry, you're not dying today. To me, that's just like, fuck, that's, that's fuck. But anyway, by 3 a.m., Robert was strapped into the gas chamber once again. And this is, I think, the fourth time. Literal seconds before his execution, Ninth Circuit Court Judge Harry Pregerson, which God bless you for that last name, because that sucks, stayed the execution for the fourth time. He stated that Robert should be allowed to begin a new lawsuit in the state court. But this was swiftly vacated, like hours after vacated by the Supreme Court and Robert was executed. His execution became the first one in California in 25 years. Like I mentioned, there was a de facto moratorium placed on both California and on the U.S. in the 70s. So by 1992, Robert was the first one executed in California. Also, fun fact, his last meal was a 21-piece bucket of KFC, two large Domino's pizzas, a bag of deli beans, a six-pack of Pepsi, and a pack of Camel cigarettes. Part of me is like, why? You're not gonna, like, get a heart attack or anything. I don't know why these men get so much food before they go. I guess maybe, like, fill them up, make them happy. I don't know. Like, I, that's so much food. So I, I found a archived San Diego Union Tribune article, which is really cool, from when this happened. And this is one of the quotes from a reporter who was there, and her name was Laura Hearn. She goes on to say, it was almost as if Robert Harris knew this time that he was going to die. He didn't joke, he didn't laugh, he didn't roll his eyes as he frequently did during the earlier failed attempt to kill him. And as gas filled in, glowing green, in the glowing green chamber, he mouthed, it's all right, to several people. And also, according to the Tribune, he also looked at Steve Baker, who was the father of Michael Baker. And in his words, he said that Harris slowly started looking around the gallery. And the minute he saw me, he stopped and he didn't look anymore. He mouthed the words, looking me square in the eye. I'm sorry. I nodded my head at him. Now, he didn't nod his head at him to like, you know, take his apology. He just nodded to be like, okay, thanks. He died at 6.21 a.m. And he was taken to a funeral home two hours later. Harris was 39 at the time of his death. Now, his last words were, 
you can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper, which I guess was based off of Bill and Ted's bogus journey, which I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. You can't ruin that movie for me, buddy. And the last one. Fran's Market was a Fresno area supermarket owned by Ray and Fran Schletzwitz. Schletzwitz. Things changed one day in 1974 when a man the couple had known for years planned to rob their store. Now, this was only supposed to be like a really petty crime, honestly. I mean, not even petty, but like it wasn't supposed to be violent. The man in question was Clarence Ray Allen, who had plotted to involve his son, Roger Allen, and three other men that he had worked with. Allen had owned his own security guard business, I guess, so he had a lot of men that he could equip to help him with all this shit. Alan arranged for someone to steal a set of door and alarm keys from Ray and Fran's son, Brian. And then Alan arranged a date between Brian and Mary Sue Kitts, who was actually Roger's 17-year-old girlfriend at the time. Um, and they were supposed to go on a date that evening when the robbery was going to happen. Now, during the burglary, four men were able to get $500 in cash and another $10,000 in money orders from the store safe, which Robert Harris should take some notes. You fucking piece of shit. But then again, this is not a good case. I'm sorry. Kids told Brian about the burglary and all the money that was stolen. And Brian confronted Roger, who then went to his father and told him what happened. I think... I think Mary Sue just felt really bad because when she came back, she was helping them, you know, cash all these money orders and everything. She didn't realize how much money was actually being stolen at the time. I think it just was on her conscience. All right. So from there, Alan enlisted some of his employees to help him get revenge. He ordered one of the men to kill Kits. There was an attempt to poison her, which failed, which then I'm like, you stupid fucks. One of the men later strangled Kits and threw her body into the canal, and it was never found. Which is just like the last case. She was 17. Just makes me so sad. Years later, the man that did this was arrested, and he confessed to the murder. He implicated Alan for the crime as well. Alan was tried and convicted for first-degree murder, and he landed himself in prison for life. The other man was given a reduced charge for second-degree murder for confessing. Now, this is not where the story ends, my friends. However, Alan is a pretty fucked-up man, okay? Instead of serving his life sentence or however long he was going to be there and try to rehabilitate himself and blah, 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 he decided to conspire with a fellow inmate at Folsom Prison, of course. And they made plans to kill various witnesses who testified against him. And this included Brian, the man that he conspired with. He got parole, and he did as Alan told him. On September 5th, 1980, he and his girlfriend went to Fran's Market and murdered Brian along with two employees, Josephine Roca, who was 17, and Douglas White, who was 18. Why are so many kids dying? Why do they gotta do this? Now, although Alan was not the murderer because he was in jail, he was still charged in 1982. The jury found Alan guilty and convicted him of triple murder and conspiracy to murder eight witnesses. That's like some mob shit right there. Like, dude, chill the fuck out. What is that gonna give you? He was also eligible for the death penalty, which he received. So in... 2006, Alan was executed by lethal injection, and it was the day after his 76th birthday. That's what you get, bitch. Celebrate. He was the second oldest inmate in the United States to be executed, and he was the oldest in California. He also became the most recent inmate in the state to be executed as well, and I'm 
pretty sure one of the last, the way that California is going right now. We'll see. Helen was assisted into the death chamber by four guards. And another thing to note is that the warden said he needed an additional injection of lethal potassium in order to stop his heart because it was so healthy, which I'm like, cry me a river. His last words were, my last words will be, hoka hey, it's a good day to die. Thank you very much. I love you all. Goodbye. According to Wikipedia, he died with a feather on his chest, a medicine bag around his neck, and a beaded headband. Because before his death, he was visited by two Native American spiritual advisors. His time of death was 12.38 in the morning. Another thing to mention is that, according to the Clark prosecutor, his last meal was, yet again, a Another bucket of KFC, but white meat only, sugar-free pecan pie, sugar-free walnut ice cream, and whole milk, which is fucking gross because I don't know what kind of diet he was on and I don't even care to know. Sugar-free walnut ice cream and whole milk? You are a monster. Gross. That was it for this week's deep dive. It was more of like a shallow dive. I don't know what I'll be covering next week. Uh, I honestly haven't thought that far in advance, but I'm excited for our, for whatever we do. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Have a great weekend. Don't stay dry, stay warm, stay safe. And I will see you guys next week. Bye.